It's the Misdeeds and Intrigue podcast, featuring stories of royals, scandals, and true crime. Here are your hosts, Carrie and Larissa. Hey, just a quick intro on this one. We're a little behind production-wise, so hopefully the timeliness of this particular episode, some of the topics won't be too apparent. We're also working on our audio, but the biggest apology on this one is geography. A lot of times our discussions are fluid, and we don't always plan the direction of where it's going to go. I think many listeners will cringe when we start talking about the Middle East. Abu Dhabi is the capital of the Emirates. Hopefully I said that correctly. Dubai is also in the Emirates. And I think I clarified it, but maybe our convo was more on point than what I thought. But it's been so long, I, I don't remember. But here you go. Buckle up and hopefully you won't cringe a lot on this episode journey. Man, I'm tired. What do you make of Harry's visit to the coronation? Because he was on the ground for such a short amount of time. Listen, this visit was a blink and you miss it visit. I mean, he was here for just over... 24 hours. He got in late on the Friday. And by the time that the royal family were having the official pictures taken here at Buckingham Palace, Harry was already en route to the airport. So it it really was a fleeting visit. And I think he'd never looked more like a spare part, you know, and that word spare, obviously his autobiography. But to me, I looked at him and just thought, you look like a spare part. And I think many people, including some members of his own family, wondered why he bothered coming at all. Yes, he can say that he was at his father's coronation thank goodness he was there because it would have looked terrible had he not been but really couldn't he have been at that lunch at the palace there was a place set for him at the table his father the king would have welcomed him with open arms and I think it was a great shame because there was no interaction between him and any of the family members that mattered so what do you think about Meghan and Harry and Harry's trip to the coronation um I think it's very interesting that Megan, I definitely think I do. I do know it's Archie's birthday. I get it. So I can see why it'd be a good cover for her to stay home. I probably would do something similar. I think she knows how much she's hated. And I think she's been trying to get Harry to be in the spotlight to kind of take some of the hate off of her. Mm -hmm. I wonder if he got the apology he wanted from his dad because he said that before they go, he wanted this apology and all that. So it was kind of emotional blackmail. It's weird because I got this. Have you looked at Markle News 1? They did this post. Do you want me to read the whole yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please do. So some info I heard. This is the post. This is the quote from Markle News 1. It's not me. So some info I heard. I can't remember if I shared it or not. If so, it's buried in my comment history. Megan has allegedly been throwing huge fits and berating Harry for humiliating her and letting her down and had been playing the will they won't they game not only for the world royal family, but with Harry. He can't tell his attorneys to tell his father's attorneys to tell his father what they've decided because Megan won't decide and Harry isn't a big boy yet and can't make a decision on his own. Harry reportedly wants to be at his father's coronation. This came out right before the coronation. And wants Meghan to come too for the sake of appearances, not to mention the historical record. But Meghan won't give him an answer. One minute she's going, going, then she's not. And she's screaming at him that she can't go because he's humiliated her. She sanctions his going alone, then she doesn't. They are on the outs, but she still is very much in control of Harry. 
she's the one discarding here and Harry's angry, confused, drugged out and on board to separate, but he apparently still comes when called. I don't understand the drugged out thing. I don't believe he's on any Because he said he was like out on uh, shrooms and all that or whatever uh, he was okay. talking about, microdosing, and he smokes weed and all that. It says, I also heard yesterday that a spokesperson for the Todgers told the BBC that Harry and Meghan's decision was that they haven't made a decision yet, but that they have made the decision to make a decision within days. Then that story got buried somehow because I haven't seen it again. I mean, this is all old news. Did I mention on the podcast that we have it from very good authority that it's a very mixed bag on how the royal family feels about her on Diana's side? No. No, you did not. Well, I have someone close to that family who said that it's split. There are some are either with her and some are against her. There's no in between. And some want them to split. So I don't know. I think, I don't know. Even if they split, he would stay in California to be by his kids. Yeah. There's no way they're going to. What do you think about them taking the titles Prince and Princess? Yeah, uh, and uh, a bit more um, context, if we can put it that way, coming in from uh, California, where they say uh, that uh, the princess's uh, title and prince for Archie, of course, will be used in formal settings, but not in everyday conversational use by the couple. Understood to be keen not to deny their children their birthright, but to allow them the chance to decide for themselves when older whether to drop or keep using the titles. I mean, it's, you know, is it something you can actually decide to drop or is it a badge that you have to carry with you for the rest of your life? Well, obviously, they will. The idea is, of course, to give them the choice in the sense that I'm, mean, for example, uh, Princess uh, Eugenie and Princess Beatrice, uh, they were given uh, the HRHs, they chose to use them. Uh, in theory, I mean, uh, they need not necessarily have. Uh, the fact that they are royal and the fact that they use the HRHs means that there's far more press attention. Now, that is an aspect of it, which, of course, uh, the Sussexes will no doubt have considered, especially since they have such fraught relations with the press. But, yes, it is a very curious situation since the, both the Sussexes, Harry and Meghan, have an HRH but are under the agreement with uh, the Queen. They are no, are not permitted to use it. Mm. But on the other hand, you have their children who may or may not decide to use an HRH. Uh, it's interesting that uh, Anderson Cooper, when Harry was giving an interview to promote uh, the his memoirs Spare, asked Harry, uh, why not give up your titles? And Harry bridled and said words to the effect of what would that prove and why should we? Well, very clearly, they attach more importance to titles than we thought. Right. I think that's completely hypocritical. They said from the get-go that it wasn't about the titles, that they didn't need the titles, they don't want the titles, and now these kids are prince and princess, which that's their birthright, I get, but why would you use it in the United States? I don't understand why they're not just Lilibet and Archie. I don't understand what... When and they Zara Tyndall and all them were happy that they didn't get titles that Princess Anne decided not to. There's a freedom that comes with not having them. I just can't figure out which way they're going. I can't grasp 
I don't think they know. I don't think they know. I do think she's going to reopen her TIG thing and try to now go into like Martha Stewart line. Well, I thought that by taking the titles, they actually were going to try and go back into the royal life. Because that's what that says to me. The titles monetize. no. No, I think the titles monetize. How did their leadership or whatever Netflix show do? You know, they did like did well, but the leadership think, one. Oh, not the, what they there did was like a, a yeah, there was show? like a documentary one where they were like, yeah, Oof. yeah, it was no, very boring. As well as spilling the beans, and without both of them there during the coronation, um, I don't know that there's going to be much to work with. So the Danish royals, the ones where that their titles were taken away, you know, the kids, mm-hmm. they're moving to the States. I'm very curious to see oh. how, if there's going to be a friendship between them. Where are they moving? I think, it, I, yeah, I think it was East Coast though. But yeah, they're, they're planning on moving. Drama within the Danish royal family. Prince Joachim speaks out after his mother, Queen Margaret II, takes away his children's titles of prince and princess. Speaking with a Danish news outlet on Thursday, the prince says, quote, We are all very sad. It's never fun to see your children being mistreated like that. And now his four kids find themselves in a situation they do not understand. This follows the monarch's announcement on Wednesday. A royal statement revealed the Queen's grandchildren have new monikers, Count and Countess of Montpezet, as Prince and Princess titles will be discontinued altogether next year. The reason? Well, the Queen's other son, Prince Frederick, is heir to the Denmark throne, so his oldest son, Prince Christian, will hang on to his title, as he's likely to take up the crown one day, while the other grandchildren, not so much. The royal statement explains this is the new normal. Quote, the Queen's decision is in line with similar adjustments that other royal houses have made in various ways in recent years. And as the Queen herself tells it, she also thinks the move will be good for her grandchildren. Prince Joachim shares two of his children with his ex-wife, Alexandra who says, quote, We are all confused by the decision. We are saddened and in shock. The children feel ostracized. They cannot understand why their identity is being taken away from them. Yeah, and when asked about Alexandra's comment, the queen responded with confusion. Quote, I haven't seen it myself, I must say. He's going to Washington, D.C. He's going to work at the embassy in Washington, D.C., the colonel and I, his family, we all went to an embassy event before it then in Den- for Denmark. The ambassador goes. They have the Danish young professionals. Like they put on like the whole like a whole thing. So I guarantee. I really wonder if the- he'll be in attendance to another Danish event. Wait, Prince Harry or the Danish the Danish uh, prince. prince? I'm sure he will. Yeah. So like if now, they're moving to the East Coast, maybe they're moving near Washington, D.C. They are. He's he's working at the embassy. Oh, okay. But not as a prince, right? Yeah. So if I see him, I will let you know because... Oh, my God. You need to you need to wire yourself. Oh, I know. I'm going to wire on you. Let's get some yeah. intel. <laughs> Go, sister. I'm going through my list <sighs> of topics as you're talking to see what... I found a bunch of cartel ones in there. But it's like yeah. daily dollar short of conversation. 
<laughs> I have a bunch of stuff on Russian people that are mysteriously dying. Oh. Um. Oh. oh, did you hear about this? I don't know if we may want to cut this out, but you know how I we literally was just at a dinner and they were talking about how Saudi Arabia is trying to get, aren't they trying to get more tourism or something like that over there? Uh-huh. This is Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, otherwise known as MBS. He's considered the de facto ruler of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. MBS announced the futuristic megacity project called Neom back in 2017. To simplify what Neom would look like, he reached into his pocket and pulled out two mobile phones, an old phone and another newer smartphone. This is what we're going to achieve in Neom. He's creating a city at the cost of hundreds of billions of dollars, where there is no city, no habitation of any size at all. He really wants Neom to be something that hasn't existed in the world before. I think that's very important to him, that this is not modeled on anything else, even though other people might point out, you know, it has similarities to other models. He really wants this to be like something brand new and completely innovative and completely, you know, out of the box and something that the world has never seen before and that he has brought into existence. Neom gets its name from two words, neo, which is the Greek word for new, and m, which is an abbreviation of the Arabic word mustakbal, Arabic for future. Also, the first letter of the crown prince's name is m. Neom is a proposed futuristic smart city currently being built in the Tabuk province in northwestern Saudi Arabia. The site sits next to the Gulf of Aqaba, which borders Egypt, Israel, and Jordan. The project plans to cover an area of more than 10,000 square miles, about the same size as Massachusetts. The Mammoth Project, which is a part of Saudi Arabia's Vision 2030 reform plan to diversify its economy away from oil, is expected to complete its first phase by 2030 and cost $319 billion. Neom is this incredibly expansive project that started its conceptual life as an idea to build a brand new city. And it has since really just grown and grown and like sprouted new heads. And it's no longer just a new city. It's this entire new region that has all of these different components, one of which is an octagon-shaped industrial city that partially floats on the Red Sea. There is a ski resort component up in the mountains that they're calling Trojana. And then most recently, they also announced a sort of island resort project called Sindala that's extremely high-end and geared to sort of like yacht owners and very high-end tourists. One of the chief components of Neom is the line a linear smart city with no roads, cars, or emissions. The city will run on 100% renewable energy. And what's more, Saudi officials say the city could accommodate 9 million residents by 2045. The line is really the centerpiece of Neom at this point. It's the biggest and the splashiest and the most kind of ambitious part of the project. It is essentially a linear city that is composed of two buildings meant to be about 200 meters wide, 500 meters tall, which is basically the size of the Empire State Building, a bit taller even. Um, and then it would run for like 100 miles. Um, so this very narrow strip of a building, skyscraper, extremely high, um, this kind of mirrored facade. And the interior between these two long strips of buildings, you have this kind of verdant kind of uh, interior that they're imagining would be the place where people would live and play and work. It's really enormous. It's hard to almost envision the idea that they want to say that they're going to have 9 million people eventually living in this city, which is really just a building. So um, it's an entire city in one structure, essentially. 
MBS is luring big names to be part of this project by giving them offers they can't refuse. In 2017, the project hired three of the world's largest consultancy firms, McKinsey, Boston Consulting, and Oliver Wyman, in multi-million dollar deals. Not only that, Neom offers lucrative salaries to global talents with zero taxes. In 2022, the Wall Street Journal reported the project is paying senior executives roughly $1.1 million a year. Neom is a real thing. There's real money that's been devoted to it already and more that, that seems almost certain to be spent on it. They're very serious about all of this. People who are making Neom really think they can make a city that is different from every city that's come before, that's more modern than any country, that any city that's come before. It sounds like a total white elephant project to uh, a lot of people. And it may very well be that. Neom gets its money from the Public Investment Fund, the sovereign wealth fund of the Saudi government. However, MBS is now planning to raise money by offering shares of Neom to investors via an initial public offering. It's something that he's talked about kind of from the beginning, the idea that we want to IPO the city um, or we want to IPO Neom. And again, it kind of fits in with this idea of like city as corporation, you know, this kind of purely capitalistic city, which is not typically how cities are run and makes it very unusual in that respect. They're also talking about bringing in kind of potentially investment from other regional investors, Saudi investors, like Saudi private sector investors. So they're trying to kind of create a funding mix. I think it's going to be one of the biggest challenges, definitely, though, is how do you get together, even in the first phase, $320 billion is, is just an enormous amount of money, right? They can't fund that themselves, obviously, because if the entire sovereign fund is $600, $700 billion, you can't spend half of it on NEO. So there definitely need to bring in outside investors. Did you know 10 Saudi Arabian judges face a death penalty for being too lenient? And you oh. want to know what it? You want to know what they're being lenient about? Oh, do not tell me about dressing for women. Deemed too soft on women's rights activists. <gasps> Shit. Yeah. Uh, one of the judges allowed a prominent women's rights campaigner to walk free two months after she appeared before him in December of 2020, and they've all been charged with high treason after signing confessions. I don't think even Judge Dredd would be tough enough for Saudi Arabia. Yeah, so judges facing death penalty in Saudi Arabia for being too soft on human rights. And I alluded to this earlier on in the show. And uh, it, this is, yeah, basically, if judges didn't give strict enough sentences, they, they can now face the death penalty because they want to, they're trying to impose their culture. Now, I'm not saying I agree. <laughs> so I see what you do. Now, I'm not saying I agree with their treatment of, uh, for example, women. But... <laughs> if you did, just just for devil's advocate, because we're Ofcom regulated, and I know you guys are going to say the opposite. If you did have to keep your society going a certain way and run it the way you wanted, one way might be to have high trees and laws under threat of the death penalty. So you know what I mean? You know, like what if we had like people who collaborated a bit too much with the EU in the negotiations? If that was treason, <laughs> well, it, would, it wouldn't have happened. I'm just saying. Just yeah, saying. but one of the judges, Leo had put loads of people to death, yeah. including a minor. But so not, how tough? Not enough. <laughs> not, not enough. You already put 100 to death. Yeah, yeah. And there are, yeah, there's mass ex executions. Well, like 81, 81 people executed in one day in March 2022 under this Islamist theocracy, which uh, we seem to be uh, importing to the UK, by the way, through Wahhabists. This is what I don't get, though. Is supposed, I thought the whole point was that uh, under its new leader, Saudi Arabia was meant to be liberalising. But that doesn't seem to be what Liberalising can mean different things. So <laughs> you, They're very liberal with like, the death penalty. They, like, dole it out. But women can attend them. 
Oh, so, okay, but they can't drive there. They can drive there unless they're with a cousin. But yeah, you can go to the cinema. You might be able to get a, a beer in a hotel. Uh, but you know, to keep balance, they, they've got to keep everybody happy. So yeah. more public executions. I, I see what you mean. As well. They're having sports events as this sports washing. It's like, hey, they're all cool now. And it's like, oh, by the way, we're killing judges. Yeah. Don't look at that. <laughs> it's not good. So is this? Oh, and then get this. He allowed. So one of them allowed the um, to walk free two months after she appeared before him in December. That same women's right activist once shared a one world stage with the then Menachem Markle. And so she had two years and 10 months of her six year sentence suspended by the judge. Oh, wow. Yeah. And now he's facing the death penalty. Yeah. Yeah. Considered treason. And it was with a dozen other women's rights activists and a crackdown ahead of the lifting of the country's ban on women driving. Because I, from what I was, uh, what I understand, this literally just came up. The colonel was just talking about this, about how they're, I think they're trying to get tourism or something else they're trying to draw in. Oh, I know what it was. I was listening to podcasts from the BBC about how they're trying to get away from the economy being based upon oil. And they have very uh, radical yeah, yeah, yeah. plans in the coming years to, in order for that to happen. And they were saying, how is this going to work when they have policies like this? I just said something kind of smart. I can't believe <laughs> I just, I'm really not so that wait, smart. <laughs> is Dubai part of the United Arab Emirates, right? Mm-hmm. So what is Abu Dhabi part of? Um, The Sex in the City movie part one. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> Sex in the City. So United Arab Emirates, is it the same as Qatar or Bahrain? Like, are all these the acts being committed outside the UAE and Qatar and Bahrain in Saudi Arabia? I think they have their own because set Because United Arab Emirates is not part of Saudi Arabia. And what I'm wondering is all this injustice taking place in Saudi Arabia or UAE because UAE is like a Las Vegas on steroids for the Western world. Right. Mm -hmm. Except for, you know, there's no salacious, they don't have like strip cubs or anything like that. And you really, you can't, as a tourist, you can't really walk on the street. I mean, you can walk in your normal clothing, but I don't think you can parade around in a bikini. Yeah. But it's got, Everything else you can imagine. So what I'm wondering is, is this injustice against women happening in Saudi Arabia or UAE? Because Abu Dhabi and Dubai are definitely angling for tourism. Yeah. Even with like the live golf tournament being there. And but I think that the live golf tournament is backed by Saudi Arabia. That's what I thought there was. That's why part of the reason why I had sent myself that article I was like, I feel like they had some connection with the LIV or the... Yeah, and the Saudis are the ones who killed the journalist, right? And dismembered him. Yes. So... Stogie or... I'm sorry, I say him. Yeah, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, so what I'm wondering is which place is angling for the... I know you already know Dubai and... And Abu Dhabi are, but is Saudi Arabia angling to make Qatar or Bahrain one of those big touristy cities like Dubai? When I was listening to that podcast, that's one of the, that's they're saying about they're trying to shift away from the oil. So, yeah, which is going to be 
which is going to be a challenge. I read a really good series. I think it's on the Kindle Unlimited. It was about by a woman through like a ghostwriter who mm-hmm. was like an extended because the royal families are huge over there. Yeah. And she it basically follows her through her life. It's like an like an autobiography and some things, you know, she loves about her country, but other things she really exposes like her mm-hmm. brother raping like an eight year old girl that he bought from like them from her mother mm-hmm. in like Egypt. Yeah. Oh yeah. And God. she talked about like, yeah, sex party, like all kinds of stuff she was talking about. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I do remember lots of parties going on on yachts with yep. uh, Royal Saudi families. Exactly. A property owner in Los Angeles is regretting his decision to rent out one of his Hollywood Hill homes to a Saudi prince who had just graduated from Pepperdine University. Now, the Saudi prince had such a huge party that it destroyed the property and cost tens of thousands of dollars in damage. Now, the property owner is planning on suing, but wait till you hear all the details of what happened to his home. Now, Saudi prince Aziz Al Saud graduated this year from Pepperdine University. To celebrate, he rented out a well-known party home in the Hollywood Hills, which he allegedly stocked with drinks, snacks, strippers, drugs, and drama. That's according to Gawker. (laughs) She goes into, and this is, you could tell when it was written that it was, it's a few decades old. So I can just imagine what it's like now. Yeah. I mean, if anything, I think they try and hide a little bit more now. Yeah. But I'm just wondering. Yeah, I... We got to do more research into this because I feel like I know some of the stories. The Dubai princess who was like one of like six women and she ran away from her husband and brought the court case in England. Yeah. We need to find out more because I do. There's so many Westerners in Dubai. I mean, they're doing a real housewives segment. So I I think, I don't know. So I have one more story if you want to sign off soon because I know we've been on for a while. A crypto prodigy, 23, he's... He's abducted and tortured after scamming investors out of $29 million before blowing $12 million on a fleet of supercars, luxury vacations, and a private jet. Who was that? His name is Aiden Perteski, and he's been going through bankruptcy proceedings. And so the government's trying to recover like $29 million from him. Only $1.6 million of it was returned. We begin with an update in a case involving Ontario's self-proclaimed crypto king. CBC News has received a video of Aidan Platursky visibly beaten and apologizing for losing investors' money. We've also learned five men are charged with kidnapping him. This comes during a bankruptcy case that's trying to find more than $40 million given to Platursky to invest. The CBC's Angelina King is working on this story and joins me live. Good morning, Angelina. What more have you learned? Well, Chris, this case just continues to develop and now a really dramatic turn to tell you about. So CBC News has received a 12-minute edited video of Aidan Platursky in it. He's visibly beaten and bruised. He explains what he says happened to the more than $40 million of investor money that's unaccounted for right now. He also apologizes to investors in the video. I just want to play a short clip of it for you. I'm sorry. I really am. I didn't want to. I mean to ruin anybody's life. When the money was coming in, I was failing to tell people that I'd lost a lot of it, which caused me to use more leverage in the crypto market, which caused me to lose more and more and more because I was trying to recoup my losses, which was not the right thing to do at all. Now, Toronto police wouldn't verify the video, but through his lawyer, Platursky said that it was taken when he was kidnapped in December. 
Swiderski's lawyer told CBC in an email, neither he nor I have seen the complete video, so he can't really comment on it. All he can say is that while some of it is accurate, he was being forced to say a lot of it. Now, as I've said, this story keeps twisting and turning, so another update for you. Uh, CBC has also learned that five men have been arrested and charged with the alleged kidnapping of Platursky in December. They're also charged with intending to hold him for ransom. Now, before we get to those details, I want to just take a step back and give you a little bit of background on this case. It's one that we've been following for quite some time now. So Aidan Platursky, he's 24 years old. He really touted this lavish life lifestyle on social media, posting photos on private jets with luxury cars, wearing designer clothes. And all of this caught the attention of investors who collectively gave him at least $40 million to invest in cryptocurrency and foreign exchange. But last year, things really started to unravel. Um, a bankruptcy proceeding was launched to try and find out where this money went, because according to documents in that proceeding, less than 2% of that $40 million was actually invested by Platursky. Now, back to this alleged kidnapping case. Court records show that one of the five men charged lost more than $700,000 investing with Platursky. And another twist to tell you about, that man was actually appointed as an inspector in the bankruptcy proceedings. So that means that um, he was one of the people uh, in a role of representing the investors who lost their money uh, to in, in this bankruptcy proceeding. And that man has also been charged with uh, threatening an official who's overseeing the proceeding for $2 million in cryptocurrency. Well, who was he tortured by and kidnapped by? He said that he was kidnapped in the middle of the night in December and held for three days. He said that the father, his name is Adam Peters, said he got a call late night demanding $3 million Canadian or $2.1 million American in ransom. Peters then claims his son was driven around Orlando, or Ontario, sorry, not Orlando, big difference, mm -hmm. beaten and tortured. Yeah. So supposedly he was released after a few days, but they threatened to come up with the money quickly or else. Oh. One of the few calls he was allowed to make was to his landlord who testified that the kid called him begging for the millions in ransom payments. And the landlord was like, there's nothing I can do. No suspects have been revealed in the kidnapping and Toronto police did, did not provide any information on the suspected kidnapper. So the daily mail is calling it like, maybe he was, he said it was, they think it might be a hoax. Was it? Well, I don't know, but I think, it kind of has shades of murder on there for me. It does. By the way, speaking of murder, I mean, this is going way off topic, but do you think the son or brother who is still alive will face any legal ramifications off the death of the kid who he was involved with or any of this? Do you think that's coming down the pike or do you think the father's paying for all of it? No, I think the father's paying for all of it. If anything... He his estate might be sued and maybe mm -hmm. the family will get something civil wise, but I don't, I think too much time passed and there's probably too many mistakes made. Yeah. And it's all really conjecture. Cause they're all saying, Oh, he, he knew Buster, but there was not any concrete. Yeah. It has, they tried so many years to cover whatever it was up that you're right. Yeah. Coming for out of that police department. No one is coming forward. Yeah. No, I think that they, they messed up. No one's going to sing like a bird. Yeah, no, I don't. I think it's going to be. 
Um, next time I have lots of stuff to talk to you about Russian rich people <gasps> and the KGB and a school of sex, uh, spying. Sex spying? Yes. Spying on people having sex or? No. Like you learn the tools of the trade so you can be a better spy. Oh, you learn how to be a prostitute so yeah. you can be a spy. Yeah. Oh, that's very, that's very, oh God. Yeah. Is that? 1939, Germany crushes Poland with devastating speed. The world is shocked by Blitzkrieg, but amazed by the speed and the strength of the invasion. And people are wondering, what's Germany's next move? The German military have a problem. High-level leaks in their government are threatening to give the game away. For Blitzkrieg to be effective, it has to have a massive element of surprise. So if the Allies are going to know where Blitzkrieg will strike next, the German advance will therefore be easily thwarted. Not every high-ranking German is a loyal Nazi. And some actually are willing to derail Nazism by passing secrets to the Allies. Head of the SS, Heinrich Himmler, orders head of German security, Reinhard Heydrich, to find out who may be secretly plotting against the Nazis. Heydrich's traditional intelligence methods are proving ineffective. But while he is enjoying the pleasures of a brothel, he has a sudden brainwave. What are the two oldest professions in the book? Well, they're spying and they're prostitution. If you can combine those two, you've got a very powerful source of information. Heydrich wants a ring of sex spies at his disposal. He recruits a team of agents to help weave his web of seduction. To lure high-profile clientele, the Nazis will need a high-class location. The agents pay a visit to Salon Kitty, Berlin's most exclusive and luxurious brothel. The brothel's madame, Kitty Schmidt, is given a very simple choice. She's either going to be sent to a concentration camp or she has to play along with the operation. So, what do you choose? Concentration camp or German spy brothel? She chose spy brothel. The agents secretly install bugging devices in the brothel's bedrooms so the amorous activities can be monitored directly by the security officers next door. And all the time, the Nazis are going to be listening in, as if prostituting out women wasn't sordid enough for them. Using state-of-the-art equipment, the intimate rendezvous will be recorded and passed up to Nazi High Command for further analysis. The next task is finding the sex spies themselves. What the women need to be is highly intelligent, highly resourceful, and also extremely loyal to the Third Reich. It's a very dirty business, and they need the right women to do it. Across Germany, hundreds of women are recruited and sent to a secret location in Stuttgart. At the base, a team of academics, psychiatrists and doctors analyse each subject to determine their suitability as sex spies. It was a ruthlessly sexist selection process. Those that they thought were unattractive, dim-witted or emotionally unstable were weeded out until only 20 remained. The final list of candidates undergo an intense 10-day-long training regime. They are tested on their knowledge of Nazism, secret code, and most importantly, how to use sex to lure secrets out of their customers. 
They really represent sort of the apex of the espionage ladder, except that when these women work, they just work without their clothes on. When training is complete, the girls are sent to Berlin, and in March 1940, the revamped Salon Kitty is reopened for business. Within 12 months, 10,000 German officials and foreign dignitaries come through Salon Kitty's door. With so many high-profile customers, the brothel soon becomes a goldmine of invaluable intelligence. So these men that walk through the front door of the brothel, they think they're about to get hooked up. When the reality is that the German police state is watching them and they're actually about to get stitched up. While they're in bed with the girls, these men are happy to expose themselves in every way. The men leave the brothel with a smile on their face, unaware that they may have signed their own death warrant. There's a really good um, podcast. That's very pussy galore, isn't yeah. it? The Mati Hari. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I like that. That's interesting. Yeah, there'll Let's be I have a, yeah, I've been collecting a lot of information on it. And so <laughs> I'm like, we gotta we, I gotta like clean these these uh topics out because I just have so much on it. Do it. On a side note, because I was listening to again the BBC, because they do have really they have yeah. good interviews. That's like my that's like my favorite source for news now. Yeah. BBC worldwide. Yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. Russian medics on there that are being pressured into becoming sex slaves when they get deployed. Mm-hmm. Wait, deployed in the in the war against yeah. Ukraine or yeah. where? Against Ukraine, yeah, yeah. Russian like Just... medics and some other, yeah. That country is going to be leveled. I mean, leveled by the time this is over. I know. There will be nothing left of the Ukraine. No, I know. And they apparently, I mean, well, there was that recent leak, which I can't speak of. I can't even Mm. mention it on here because they're monitoring Mm. us. But okay. Again, BBC is teaching me so much between Saudi (laughs) Arabia's uh, economy and now this that the Ukrainians think that they're going to, that they really are going to win. But, and they don't want to just negotiate. They want the the what the land they lost in 2014. And Putin mm-hmm. thinks he's going to win. And he just wants like all of it. So it's going to be interesting. But like that's you said, I think it's going to be devastated. It's That's what's weird. It's like, I think there might be able to be some sort of peace treaty if, okay, so in 2014, they took the Crimea, right? Yeah. If they could agree on something... But he wants it all. Yeah. He wants all of it, which is like, uh, I mean, we already saw this happen in the Balkans. And there's no way that those people are going to give up their country. There's no no way. They will fight until the last person. They would probably rather see it uh, bombed to smithereens than that's their country. They're not going to let it. Yeah, you can say, oh, well, the breadbasket, you know, the herbivore and all, or the famine. And it's, it's the similar with why, again, I learned so much about, yeah, that why Poland didn't fully accept communism after World War II Mm -hmm. is because there was such a denial about the massacre of their officers, you know, Mm -hmm. like 20,000 officers by the Russian or by the, you know, the communists. Communists, yeah. It never fully took, but, and there's still this distrust to this day. And it's the same in Ukraine. 
For many years, only the most senior communist officials had access to these Soviet archives. Most of the documents are marked top secret. In 1990, Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev ordered this folder containing reports on the Katyn executions to be removed from the archives and handed over to Poland. The most valuable document is a memo sent to Stalin by Lavrenti Beria, the People's Commissar of Internal Affairs, in April 1940. To Comrade Stalin, the Polish prisoners are trying to continue their counter-revolutionary activities in the camps. Each of them is only looking for an opportunity to join the struggle against the Soviet government. The NKVD of the USSR feels it's necessary to apply to them a special procedure. Execution by a firing squad. Signed, Beria, People's Commissar of the Internal Affairs of the USSR. That was the first time that Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev officially declared that the Soviet government was to blame. He offered his condolences and gave me a folder of documents containing lists of executed Polish officers. And it was proved once again that in April 1940, the Poles were taken away by railroad. And nobody saw them alive again. Polish officers were brought here railway junction. They were put into boxcars and taken away in this direction by train. Much later, we found out that they had been taken to the city of Kalinin. From Ostashkov, the train journey to Kalinin took 24 hours. In 1940, the communist official Mikhail Kalinin was among other high-ranking officials endorsing the execution of the Poles. The building standing opposite the monument to Kalinin once housed the NKVD's regional headquarters. This is where the lives of the Polish prisoners were cut short. More than 50 years later, Dmitry Tokarev, who ran the local NKVD, was interrogated by investigators from the military prosecutor general's office. After we showed Dmitry Tokarev archive documents proving his guilt, he realized that it was in vain to deny anything and gave a detailed true testimony. My men didn't shoot more than 300 people a day. Only once did they shoot as many. That had to be done under the cover of darkness because the nights were now too short. So they brought 250 people at a time and we shot them during the night. Those about to be shot were taken to the basement one by one, supposedly to have their papers checked. But once there, they were stripped of their personal belongings and valuables. Only then did it occur to the prisoners that they were never going to leave that place alive.
After the biography of a Polish prisoner of war was completely identified, two men would take him by the arms and lead him into a cell just like this one. The walls of the cells were covered with felted cloth to absorb noise. A third man fired a shot from a Walter pistol at the back of the head of the prisoner. When Dmitry Tokarev was interrogated in 1991, he agreed to sketch a route leading to the site where the bodies of executed Polish officers had been buried. There was a building here where senior NKVD officials relaxed. Tokarev's dasha, or country house, was nearby. It's a very picturesque place by the riverside. Top NKVD officials spent a lot of time relaxing here. The wives and children of minor officials lived here, and large ditches only 30 meters from the houses were filled with thousands of bodies. Yeah, you could say certain events happened maybe 100 years ago, but you still have generations that can still talk about certain things. And so yeah. it's just too, it's too recent, it's too, there's too much residual. Yeah. Just trying. It, it will always bubble back up. Yeah. In, in a lot of these countries, I'm sure it'll bubble back up in Croatia and Bosnia and it's all, yeah. Uh, Croatia and Bosnia, the former Yugoslavia, yeah. the Serbians wanted a greater Serbia that was ethnically pure. You cannot do that. There are too many ethnicities there. Yeah. It's like, it's like the former USSR. You can't do it there's two you know putin's trying to make it all one it just won't work they're not one you know a quiet rural neighborhood shattered by barbaric violence in a village west of kiev a first-hand account of rape by invading soldiers when we started talking to this woman we didn't know what we were about to hear we are hiding her identity to protect her. A soldier entered our house. My husband and I were there. At gunpoint, he took me to a neighboring house. He was ordering me, take your clothes off or I'll shoot you. Then he started raping me. While he was doing that, four more soldiers entered. I thought I was done for, but they took him away. She returned home to find her husband shot in the abdomen. He died two days later. She buried him in the backyard. I found drugs and Viagra that they left behind. They would get high and they were drunk. Most of the invading soldiers are killers, rapists and looters. Only a few are okay. I want to ask Putin, why is this happening? I don't understand. We're not living in the Stone Age. Just up the road, we heard of another rape case. It's being investigated by the police. This is the house a woman was taken to and assaulted. Upstairs, the bedroom where she was later killed. It's a disturbing scene. On the mirror, a message in lipstick. Tortured by unknown people, buried by Russian soldiers, it says. Out in the garden, we were shown her grave. A day after we went, Ukrainian police exhumed her body. The note 
we are told, was left by a separate unit of Russians who found her body and buried her here. They later told a neighbor, Oksana Smolenska, about the dead woman. They told me she had been raped and that her throat was either slit or stabbed and she bled to death. They said there was a lot of blood. We travelled 70 miles east to another village. To what used to be the home of a family. A couple in their 30s and their young child. Signs of their peaceful, ordinary life lie amidst the ruins. On the 9th of March, Russian tanks rolled in. Two soldiers shot the man dead. The woman who lived in this house managed to escape along with her child. She called the Ukrainian police and she's given them her testimony. She's told them she was raped multiple times by the two drunk Russian soldiers who killed her husband. And she said they threatened to kill her little boy too if she didn't do exactly as they said. As the soldiers left, they burned down the house. The police chief has told us they've gathered evidence and plan to go to the international court. Ciao, darling. Still too early to go to Tiffany's. I guess the next best thing is a drink. I will never be the woman with the perfect hair who can wear white and not spill on it. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Let's play a game, all right? On the count of three, name your favorite dinosaur. Don't even think about it, just name it. Ready? One, two, three. Hey, it's me again, and you thought you probably had enough of my voice by now. Just a quick reminder to find us and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Miss Intrigue Pod. Follow us on Pinterest and Flipboard where we collect featured stories from across the internet of royalty, chronicles of interesting events in history, and of course, true crime. Lastly, check out our YouTube channel because everyone has one, right? That features playlists of documentaries and other related segments from our podcast topics. And if you want to hit us up, check out Miss deeds and intrigue podcast.com but we don't have a complaints department just to give you a little heads up the podcaster or authors assumes no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast the information contained on this podcast is an as-is basis with no guarantees of completeness accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. A reasonable amount of effort was made to deliver precise data. All views expressed by the podcast hosts or guest co-hosts are their own and do not necessarily represent the opinion of any entity whatsoever with which Carrie, 
Misdeeds or Intrigue podcast or Larissa have been, am now, or will be affiliated. The content of this podcast is for personal, informational, and entertainment purposes only and is not to be viewed for commercial use. Misdeeds and Intrigue podcast respects the intellectual property of others. Any audio clips that were not generated by the podcast host or producer was pulled from the public domain, free use sites, and or from YouTube or other authorized sites to gather information. The utmost effort was made to credit the author and or production. If at any time you feel that copyright was infringed, please email Carrie at misdeedsandintriguepodcast.com and immediate action will be taken to remove the audio clips that were present for entertainment purposes only.